0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ross Inman about the topic of divine immensity and divine omnipresence. So we cover topics like just what are these attributes and how are they related? How is it that God is really present everywhere? What are the ways that these, this has historically been cashed out among the tradition? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: Today, I am really looking forward to introducing you to a new guest, uh, Dr. Ross Inman. Before I introduce him and the topic and everything, I do need to remind you about what we are trying to do, uh, particularly with the podcast. We've, we try to create... An intellectual culture that's designed to generate thinking that has various intellectual virtues, such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So, we've hoped to get all sorts of different thinkers, all sorts of different practitioners together to talk about issues that matter and who have varying opinions on things. And we wanted to model a posture that is kind, that is loving, that is hopeful, that is faithful, all these things that we see throughout the scriptures that are commended to us as how we should be as Christians. So whether we agree with them or not, we want to model that right posture. But I think today we have someone who is much closer to where we probably both are as far as uh, our own confessional commitments, etc. And I'm really looking forward to this because we're actually Physically in the same location. Most of our podcasts these days are not in the same location. Uh, Me and Brandon, we set up shop at our own house. We record over the internet with somebody who lives, you know, 2000 miles away. But today, Dr. Ross Inman is, you know, probably like 10 minutes from my house. So we're sitting in his wonderful office, um, and enjoying this conversation together. And I'm sure you all would have enjoyed the conversation beforehand and the conversation we will likely have after. But today we're talking about divine omnipresence. I, for my part, I don't know of anyone who's been thinking about divine omnipresence at the level that Dr. Inman has. Uh, So this is going to be a treat, I think, for both all of you who are listening and for me. I've read his initial paper back from, I think he said, 2014. Uh, I read that probably way too many times because I'm not smart enough to understand all of it. Probably 15, 20 times because it's just delightful. Now he's got this other chapter that just came out in this beautiful volume, uh, the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology, Uh, edited by James Arcadi and J.T. Turner. And he's got a chapter in here on it, which I think is a little bit compressed version of that original paper with some clarifications, expansions, et cetera. I think it is a wonderful introduction to the topic. Anyone and everyone would benefit and enjoy this chapter. So I commend it to you. I'll make sure to link to this volume in the notes. I know it's an expensive volume. So what I always tell people is if you want it and you can't afford it, Tell your library to buy it. They have a budget. You can get it there. And then everybody can enjoy the riches of analytic theology. So before you guys are tired of hearing me, so let's hear from Dr. Enman Ross, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who aren't familiar with you? And then what is it that? piqued your interest in this particular topic of divine omnipresence it's not like you read a bunch of people talking about divine omnipresence and you think well that person's wrong i want to write something that's better than them it's just not there so tell me about that
2: well thanks jordan and brandon for having me on this is uh this has been a long time coming you've been very patient with me so thank you very much um and do call me ross um please (laughs) but uh yeah, so I teach here at Southeastern Seminary. So I'm an associate professor of philosophy um, here at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, right here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And um, I've been here for a, a few years um, uh, teaching philosophy and apologetics uh, here at Southeastern. And gosh, when did I get originally get interested in omnipresence? I have to say it was around either 2013 or... Late 2013, early 2014, when I was uh, reading uh, Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy, um, of all things. And uh, I've got the page open here, uh, and I have jotted in the margin, potential research topic. This was late 2013, early 2014. And Willard, uh, if you haven't read Divine Conspiracy, highly recommend uh, the book. It's a one of these paradigm-shifting uh, uh, books in spiritual formation uh, Willard has a section called "Spirit and Space," and let me just say real quick what what Willard says here. He says that no place, I think, does our contemporary mindset more strongly conflict with the life and good news of Jesus than over the understanding of space. He says if we are to make sense of Jesus's teaching and practice of the kingdom of the heavens, we must understand what spirit and the spiritual are and how they are in space. And that really gave me pause, to be honest. Um, and, and and it gave me pause in the sense of how has the Christian tradition understood God's relationship to space? There's quite a, quite a flood of literature, honestly, on divine eternity, mm-hmm. God's relationship to time, but really a paucity of material out there on God's relationship to space. I mean, you could really almost count on one hand um, – right. Uh, articles um devoted to uh, God's relationship to space only one book still to this day uh Vanden Brahm has a book called Divine Presence in the World he's a is a theologian uh in the last 50 60 years wow. one single book on divine omnipresence so if you're a grad student out there if you're if you're looking for a dissertation topic which i do know some some phd students who are working on divine omnipresence um that is a an area ripe for further exploration. So that at least got me thinking, guys. So uh hey, this is a fascinating topic. Um uh in what sense is God um related to uh spatial reality yeah. it really kind of is what got me going on the topic.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine most people would say they they affirm that God is omnipresent. But then if I were to ask, what it, well what does that actually mean that he's actually present everywhere? I think you'd quickly find out that yeah. we don't have a good grasp on what it actually yeah. means. Mm-hmm. So I guess in your chapter, what, how did you've categorized, I guess there's these two broad categories, divine immensity, divine omnipresence, uh, this absolute and relative distinction that you make. Talk to me about some of the basic distinctions that we should be aware of and be thinking through to help us categorize The topic
2: itself so i guess just as broadly as we can think about it um to say that god is omnipresent is to say that he is uh, present to or present with every place Mm -hmm. now that is quite broad and can be unpacked in various uh ways and i think um the various ways in which god is present to every place uh is really where the nub of the disagreement uh, lies in terms of in what sense is God present uh, to every place, but most generally, omnipresence um, is is the claim that uh, God is ubiquitously present uh, to every uh, place, every spatial uh, place. Now, immensity is is really uh, a seriously neglected divine attribute today. Yep. Um, you would be hard-pressed to find um, philosophical articles, specifically analytic articles, on divine immensity. Uh, I can think of one uh, that's been published um, in the last, you know, 30 years, at least in a mainstream um, academic analytic journal in Faith and Philosophy. Richard Cross has of a course. piece on divine immensity, right? No <laughs> surprise there. Um, uh, looking at Dun Scotus's view mm-hmm. of divine immensity. Uh, but immensity is really, um, historically, uh, what I've tried to argue in this chapter, immensity really is at the foundation of divine omnipresence. These are, uh, historically, these are two separate, though, closely related divine attributes. Um, divine immensity really is just a corollary of divine infinity in my understanding of the tradition, how, how this is understood. Um, so divine immensity is really, um, it it seeks to capture God's uh, being uncircumscribable um, without limit, Hmm. without bound, without limitations uh, in any sense whatsoever. Um, And in particular, uh, immensity is God's uh, infinity with respect to place. So his being unbounded or unlimited with respect to created uh, place. Um, Actually, Eternity has traditionally been defined as well as God's uh, infinity or uh, illimitability with respect to time. Mm-hmm. So, infinity really is, uh, along with divine immensity, really at the foundation for how, at least classically, theologians have thought about uh, divine eternity and uh, divine omnipresence. So, how these two attributes connect. So, you mentioned the absolute and relative distinction. So um, an absolute perfection or an absolute divine attribute is just, um, we're talking about how God is in himself, ad intra, um, apart from how he relates to, to creation or creatures. Um, so uh, an absolute attribute is traditionally been uh, understood uh, along the lines of um, amongst others, but divine immensity. So God is immense uh, whether or not there is a creation, right? So this is, a, this is how he is in say, this is yeah. how he is ad intra. Uh, he is unbounded, infinite, unlimited um, in any respect whatsoever. Um, but omnipresence, interestingly enough, has been uh, traditionally understood as a relative attribute. So this is not an absolute divine perfection, at least historically. Um, this is only a, a way God is or we can predicate omnipresence of God, uh since there is a creation uh this is a, a way of picking out god's uh, odd extra relation to creation so he is so obviously if there are no created places god's mm-hmm. not present to them yeah uh, but he is immense whether there yeah. are created places mm. a- at all but if there are any places because he is immense He will be present to them. So what I try to point out is there's this dogmatic connection between immensity and omnipresence that, and I don't want to overstate things here, but is almost entirely neglected Mm. in in the contemporary discussion about divine omnipresence. It's it's often treated as a free-floating attribute and not one that organically springs from a deeper perfection, you might say, Mm -hmm. in God. That's interesting. That's helpful.
1: Yeah, those are helpful definitions and distinctions. So in your article, um, you say, uh, historically, this is on page one, uh, 29 historically dogmatic reflection on divine omnipresence in the Christian tradition has taken the form of the following threefold schema. God is everywhere by one essence, two power and three presence. So help us understand what those, uh, what those th- three things mean, and then um, you know what is the relationship between each one of those things, three things to one another.
2: Yeah, great question. Yeah, so when you when you do some digging in the history and development of of, of omnipresence, um, it's it just it's a fascinating topic, and there's always more than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, historically, there's been this threefold schema that you'll find uh, you'll find. A sp- Explicitly stated in in Peter Lombard's sentences, uh, in various uh, sentence commentaries um, amongst the medieval scholastics, Um, Lombard actually traces it back to Gregory the Great's commentary on the Song of Songs, Uh, but it's just a way of of, uh, characterizing uh, the way in which God is everywhere, Um, and in terms of essence, power, and in presence. So let's start with maybe uh, God's being everywhere um, by by way of presence, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, although I, I'm hesitant to sort of oversimplify things here, so there are different ways uh, uh, essence, power, and presence have been cashed out yeah. um, historically. But let me just give you one kind of uh, common way of unpacking these things. So. Uh, God's being everywhere by presence was, uh, was standardly uh, understood to refer to God's, uh, God's uh, omniscience His being aware of the ongoings at every place in space. So everything is sort of uh, bare and open to his eyes um, in this sense. So God knows about the ongoings of every, um, of every, um, of every place. Um, so it's a function of his knowledge. So God's being everywhere by presence, oddly enough, it it uh, refers to God's everything being open to uh, the divine gaze by way of his his knowledge. Um, God's uh, being everywhere present, everywhere by way of his power, is is also referred to in the tradition as him him being um, imminently present or virtually present or operationally present. Uh, it just means that God is uh, operating or causally involved with a particular uh, space or the occupant of that particular place. Um, so you have a causal notion that goes along with God's being everywhere by power. He's, he's causally doing things, sustaining, creating uh, at, at particular uh, spatial places. And then his being everywhere by presence uh, is a function of his, of his knowledge. Now, God's being everywhere by essence um, is a little bit more uh, difficult uh, to characterize. But let me just say before we, we sort of move into that uh, area, uh, almost, almost all contemporary glosses on divine omnipresence will, will stop there. They will yeah. define omnipresence either in terms of God's being everywhere by power and or everywhere by presence in the sense that omnipresence really bottoms out or is nothing over and above God's, um, omnipotence or his, uh, causally relating to creatures by way of sustaining them and so on, or his, his knowledge about what's going on at particular places. And that's where a, a good many contemporary analytic philosophers and theologians will leave things. Yeah. And I guess one thing whether one agrees or disagrees with this um, because I could very well be wrong about this, but just trying to be faithful to how the tradition has unpacked these things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this other uh, sense in which God is everywhere by essence, right? And it seems to be distinct mm. from his, his being everywhere by power and by presence. So, whether we can get a firm grasp or even an analysis of what it means for God to be everywhere by essence um, is one thing, not sure, yeah, um, but it's there mm-hmm. and it's it seems like it's it's been overlooked in some senses.
0: Do you think the reason for overlooking that third category of essence is because they want to reject it or because they're just not simply aware? Or haven't thought about th- haven't thought about it hard enough because may- I mean maybe I'm wrong. It seems that somebody like Thomas Aquinas would not have the third category of essence as far as I'm familiar with him. Maybe he does. He's got written a ton, and I am not a Thomist enough, not Thomas enough to have read his entire corpus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems that when when I've read people on omnipresence, they'll reference somebody like Thomas and use the the power presence type distinction, and it leaves it there. And I know in your other paper, you you kind of cash out a little bit, Augustine, Anselm, and I think you argue persuasively that they're using that third category. So, I don't know, maybe based on your own experience reading on these things, why is it that essence is left off? Because it seems, as I think about it, I was talking to you this before, before we recorded, that if you don't have this essence uh, aspect in it, then omnipresence is nothing. It's not really a, a divine attribute. It's it's just the conjunction of omnipotence and omniscience, and nothing more than that, which seems odd to me.
2: Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Um, so, you know, some would some would say, "Well, look, isn't it better to where we can have a reductive view?" of a particular attribute. So where we might want to say omnipresence is something, um, irreducible to any other divine attribute, that would be maybe a non-reductive view of omnipresence. Um, it's better to, to get a reductive account when we can. Right. And so that might, that might sort of explain the, the tendency to try to say, well, if we can reduce it in terms of God's knowledge and his power, um, more power to you um, yeah but I guess um, what to say uh, about whether that's a genuine form of, of omnipresence well I, I think I think it could be um, in the sense that uh, God is omnipresent and here's what that means is he's cognitively aware of all that's going on in space and he is sustaining all spatial creatures. And that's just what it means for God to be present to or with every uh, place. Uh, I think that's that's a view. I don't want to definitely say that's not a form of omnipresence. Uh, but I guess my main project in this chapter was to try to open up alternative ways of viewing yeah, omnipresence yeah. historically as to uh, – and I don't even defend the view yeah. in the chapter. I'm just saying uh, here is – yeah here are uh, here's another more historically entrenched way of thinking about the, these things whether it's has merits or not uh, here it is in our tradition yeah um does that make sense yep
1: it's something we haven't mentioned but that that you do mention in the chapter is the the biblical data that points to um, omnipresence so you psalm 139 7 through 10 uh, you have jeremiah 23 first uh, Kings eight twenty three 23 and 27 act 17 is another passage that would probably come to mind for a lot of folks. Do you think there's anything, because when I think, and I don't have these passages open in front of me, but when I think Psalm 139, that that just screams to me, you know, God is, is omnipresent by way of presence. The third option in the schema, you know, um, that he knows my thoughts um, and, and all that. But the first Kings 8 passage, is there anything in that passage that you think maybe would invite us to look more at the essence piece or, or, or maybe just in any of these passages, or do you think it's still a matter of, you know, you could, these passages don't, don't really point us in one way or another and how to cash all this out, but just that God is omnipresent.
2: Ooh. Yeah. Good. Um, So that first Kings eight says, uh, "O Lord God of Israel, there's is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Um, Insofar as we find any sort of like exegetical or dogmatic reflection on first Kings eight with respect to uh, divine omnipresence or divine ubiquity, uh, one way of understanding this particular text is this idea that god cannot be contained god cannot be confined or localized to any one uh region of space or place this would somehow be in tension with uh, god's uh, perfection i would argue his immensity his uh, his infinity not having any bounds or limitations uh, not just not not him having any but it's impossible for him to be bound or contained by either time or or space uh so i point to this passage here uh, as as suggestive and at least it's a it's a sort of proof text that many classical theologians will point to
0: mm-hmm.
2: in talking about divine uh immensity so uh, because god is immense he cannot be contained much less by this house that i have built solomon says uh, so god's illimitability and, and containability or immeasurability really is a function of his uh, of his immensity now one thing that i i try to emphasize in this in this chapter is again focusing on the distinction between immensity as um as an absolute perfection Mm -hmm. and but distinguishing that from omnipresence as a relative perfection right and there's actually an explanatory relationship as far as i can tell between these two in the tradition so it's because god is immense Mm -hmm. that he is everywhere present not just by power and knowledge but in virtue of his essence now so if you if you If you go back to that threefold schema, God is everywhere by essence, power, and presence, or by essence, power, and knowledge, right? There's even an explanatory ordering, at least as I can tell, between those three things. So it's because God is immense that he is everywhere by essence um, and not just by power uh, and knowledge. So on my understanding, it's... It's in virtue of God's immensity that his essence is wholly present to every place, every created place. And because his essence is wholly present to every created place, his power and his knowledge is also present to every created place. So I don't know if you can track that sort of there's an explanatory ordering between Well, why is, why is one the case? Why is God everywhere by essence? Because he's immense. Mm -hmm. Because he's illimitable. Because he's immeasurable. He's uncontainable. There are no spatial limitations. Indeed, there can't be any spatial limitations. But why is God everywhere by power and presence or power and knowledge? Well, because of he's everywhere. He's everywhere by essence. Right. So, um, you could say it all bottoms out in immensity. So an absolute perfection explains uh, a relative perfection here. God's Mm. being ubiquitously Mm. present, but him being ubiquitously present by way of power and knowledge isn't, isn't rock bottom explanatorily here, at least as I'm understanding these things, it's, it's his being present by essence. Mm -hmm. And there are various reasons for this. Namely, I would argue divine simplicity uh, historically, but, um, That's at least the, the, the picture as I'm understanding it. But that first Kings eight passage, I I would think points more to the, um, illimitability of God, his immeasurability. No mention of power or knowledge or or anything like that. But you do find more references to, um, knowledge and power and as well as theological entailments. Yeah. Um, from other passages in scripture. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point about that first Kings passage.
0: So, one other distinction I want to get clear on before we just kind of have fun peppering you with questions on the <laughs> practical, I guess, not practical, but just more, uh, less fine grained distinctions and more just talk to me about the doctrine itself. You make this distinction between fundamental presence and derivative presence and i've found this a very helpful way to categorize the two views that we've kind of been discussing here this one view that says no it's it's just power and presence and this other one that's adding essence into the, into the conversation so maybe clarify these two versions and how the i guess where essence maps on to it in those
2: maybe before before i get get to that distinction between uh, fundamental and derivative presence um You know, it may surprise you that, um, it was often common to try to tease out what exactly, how exactly is God everywhere present by essence?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, uh, you actually find a really nuanced taxonomy of modes of presence in the tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, one of which is God's circumscriptive presence, uh, not God's circumscriptive presence. Excuse me. One of which is a, a way of something's being present at a place. It can be circumscriptively present, it can be uh, definitively uh, present, or it can be repletively present. So you find this distinction uh, in the Patristics, um, but I, I tend to I've been sort of mining some of this out of uh, of the uh, out of the Protestant scholastics. Yeah. So you you find this in in Turretin, you find this in Owen, uh, you find this in Arminius. Um, this is a very common, although they're, they're definitely appropriating this from um, the medieval tradition as well, but the idea of something's being circumscriptively present um, is that it's somehow the parts of that thing are commensurate with the various parts of, of the various places. So take my, my body, for example. Um, my body has various parts. It has a head, a heart, my hands. These are distinct, proper parts of my body. Now for my body in its entire, to be circumscriptively present at a place means that, um, the various parts of my body, my hand, my head, my heart are each, uh, sort of mapped onto a distinct, uh, place. Uh, so my hands are in one place. My head is in another place. My heart is in another place. So, it's almost like I'm uh, uh, I'm dimensively or quantitatively extended in a particular place by having uh, parts uh, extended through space. At one part at this place, another part at another place. So, obviously, you need parts mm-hmm. to be to be circumscriptively present. Now, this mode of of, of presence was was exclusively reserved for material objects. Right. Material bodies. Um, so no spirit, whether God, angels, or souls can be present at a place in this sense in particular for various reasons. But one is they don't have traditionally parts or proper mm. parts to be spread out um, or distributed across space in this particular way. Now, another um, way of being present at a place is definitive presence. So historically, this is the way that uh, created spirits like angels and human souls though immaterial, not composed of any matter whatsoever. And even materially, uh, uh, even mere, mere simple, lacking proper parts altogether, they can still be in a sense at a place. Um, but it's not circumscriptive presence. It's definitive presence. So this idea of, of, of being s- definitively present at a place is say the human soul is definitively present where the whole body is, but it's also wholly present. At every part of the body. Mm -hmm. So since it doesn't have parts, you know, the soul can't be partly present in the hand, partly present in the head, partly Mm -hmm. present in the heart. Rather, it has to be wholly present wherever it's present. Uh, But definitive presence um, excludes something's being wholly multi-located in the sense that if the soul is wholly located where the entire body is, it can't be. It can't be wholly located somewhere else, say where your body is right. um, or where um, or located uh, in in the chapel. Um, so definitive presence was was traditionally reserved for the way that angels can be in a place or occupy space in the way that human souls um, occupy a particular place. So they're limited. they can't be present this way just anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. so they're by, they're not immense they're by nature limited and they're confined they're bound to a particular uh, place but where they are they're wholly in every part of that place mm-hmm. right they're not partly in every part of that place now god it was exclusively thought to be repletively present right so without parts classically conceived god's not distributed across space time you know in the sense that my body is spread out through space um but he does, he's nonetheless in a place, indeed he's in every place, but he's holy in every place. So he's not extended as we would think material things are extended, but he is in a place, but he's not in a place in the sense in which my body is in a place. Yeah. Nor even in a place in the sense in which a created spirit, like an angel or a soul, is in a place. Wherever he is, indeed he's everywhere because he's omn- omnipresent. Uh, He's there holy. So he's wholly multi-located. He's wholly with or present to uh, every created place. So uh, most classical theologians would say uh, how to understand God's being everywhere by essence, even just negatively. He's not everywhere present circumscriptively by essence, Mm -hmm. because that's unfitting with other divine perfections. He's not everywhere present definitively, because that would mean he's limited or confined mm-hmm. to a particular place, but he is everywhere present by essence in terms of his essence being wholly present to or with every single uh, creative space. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So
0: a question that comes to my mind, let's, I guess, think about the definitive presence of an angel or a soul yeah. or something. Yeah. How is it that that can be extended in some sense or is it maybe it's not extended how can it be present in more than just a point-sized place and yet not have parts of some sort Mm -hmm. how does that work
2: i think you have to begin to think about extension in more ways than just having parts spread out across space Mm. um now, in the early modern period, and I'll just reference your listeners to uh, Robert Pasnow's book, Metaphysical Themes. He's got yeah. several really rich chapters on, in the early modern period, um, thinking about the nature of extension and spiritual extension. Um, you know, Descartes very closely weds being material with being extended, mm-hmm. sort of a kind of distance between parts means means you're extended in space. Well, what if you don't? have parts well then you can't be extended right yeah. but the way that the way that i'm understanding some of these classical thinkers is this is a kind of extension um it's a way of being in a place where that place is not point size that place is um it does have dimension but the thing that occupies it doesn't have a dimension and there's a lot to say about that but um I guess a first approximation would be if you only understand extension muriologically such that something can only be extended if it has parts, well then these things can't be extended in any sense. Mm-hmm. But the way that I find being extended used um, historically is, is, uh, is not confined to uh, it's not analyzed purely in terms of having parts proper parts cuz yeah. it seems like souls occupy extended places like the place where my body is mm-hmm. but without having parts extended across that place
0: okay so now thinking
2: about fundamental derivative yeah distinction yeah. okay um yeah so um fundamental presence and derivative presence is is just basically my way of trying to trying to unpack um what it means for something to be present uh at a at a place in a derivative and in a fundamental sense so it may it it may actually turn out guys that being present at a place is unanalyzable okay and i'm happy with that i'm honestly there may not be a further or deeper analysis as to, well, what does it mean for God's essence to be present with or at a place? Um, I'm, I'm happy with, with just saying, well, there's no further or deeper analysis. We know what it's not, but what's the fundamental analysis of God's, God's essence being present at a place? Um, we know maybe it doesn't reduce to power. We know it maybe doesn't reduce to knowledge, but what exactly is it? Um, in fact, you find Turretin and uh, uh, ac- actually uh, Peter van Maastricht, too. He he says we shouldn't we shouldn't pry too closely into <laughs> the nature of the way in which God's essence is ubiquitously present uh, in creation, but we know it is. Um, so the fundamental derivative uh, distinction is is so I say uh, in the chapter. That something is uh, present at a place fundamentally, um, only insofar as it's present at that place, but not solely in virtue of standing in either causal or epistemic relations to something that is itself present at that place. So fundamental presence, uh, something's being fundamentally uh, present at a place amounts to its being present at that place. But its being present at that place isn't exhausted by its standing in causal or epistemic relations to something that's present at that place. Um, So this is a way of capturing there's something more on a fundamental presence view of being present at a place than just knowing about what's going on at that place Mm -hmm. and even causally interacting with things at that place mm-hmm. um so presence though it might involve those things it's not exhausted by those things mm-hmm. now what again what that additional stuff might be is uh, i think a really hard a really hard uh, thing to characterize um but uh, derivative presence basically wants to uh analyze something's being present at a place uh to solely causal and epistemic conditions. Okay. So something's being derivative. It's, it's at a place, albeit derivatively, if it's either in causal contact with something at that place, or it, it has knowledge about what's going on at that place. Um, and so uh, does that help this sort of yep. this distinction between fundamental presence and derivative presence? And I guess what I try to do in the chapter is you can understand two basic models of divine omnipresence based on these two conceptions of presence yep so you can have a derivative model of omnipresence that says God is everywhere present in virtue of his knowledge and or his power um, operative at every place um, or you can have a fundamental uh, account of omnipresence that God is uh, everywhere present um, but not solely in virtue of him knowing about what's going on at every place. Mm-hmm and uh, him being uh, causally operative at every place.
0: Yeah. So I think, personally, I think I came in before I studied this, think derivative model was the approach that I'd taken. But after reading it, it makes me start rethinking things. I see how you've explained Augustine and Anselm, and I think Turretin's making use of this, and you mentioned Owen, which I haven't read that portion of Owen, but I'm sure that he's got this robust explanation of it as well. And so that makes me think, hmm, maybe I should, take up and listen and think about this. And as I thought about it, it seems, yeah, I like that idea of adding the additional quality of essence. But at the same time, it makes me start to think, does this, I mean, maybe it's just, we've got to push in the, and set, push the pause button and say, yeah, we can't go that far. It's a little bit mysterious, et cetera. We're using the mystery card in an appropriate place. But there does seem to be some sort of worry where does a fundamental presence view where I'm saying God is present by essence everywhere, does that have put me a little bit too close to something like panentheism or put me close to God having an actual body of some sort? Um, Hmm. I mean, I guess if you're okay saying angels and human souls are definitively present somewhere and they're not bodies, then that worry doesn't seem to be overly serious. But I would think someone who's pro- maybe someone the first time they hear this, those are the connotations that are coming to their mind. Like, well, what about this? How yeah. how is this not collapse into something like that um, on that model? It, so, it, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, is that a legitimate
2: worry? One contemporary analytic philosopher who whose uh, whose paper there's uh, a chapter in the Oxford Handbook to Philosophical Theology uh, called just omnipresence uh, was hud hudson Mm. so hudson was the first uh one of the first philosophers to to talk about a way of being in space that uh, doesn't entail sort of muriological extension or Mm. um this idea of being holy wherever uh something a very classical historical notion um but we we saw him sort of reconceiving or repackaging uh, this, this understanding. He calls it intention, uh, a way of being in space that doesn't entail mere logical extension. Now uh, for Hudson, he's working with um, what a conception of what it means to be a material object uh, in terms of, he defines that in terms of occupying a place or a space, right? So if, if something occupies a place, Then it's a material object, right? And on his view, God not only occupies a place, he occupies every place. Indeed, he occupies the maximal place. You might say the the entire space time, you know, maximal region. Well, then on that view, on Hudson's view, God's a material object because he occupies, he occupies a place. Now, I happen to think that's that's deeply theologically problematic uh, to ascribe uh, a body uh, to God in that sense. Um, but I think when we when we reach back further historically, uh, we don't find this sort of divide between what's material and immaterial in terms of uh, being at a place or occupying a place or being present to a place. Um, in fact, the medievals, at least the medieval hylomorphists, had had a more robust conception of how to demarcate the material from the immaterial, right? Say for Aquinas, it was to have dimensive quantity. Mm-hmm. And the only things that have dimensive quantity are things that have prime matter. Yeah. Well, of course, God doesn't have prime matter, nor does he have dimensive quantity. So he's not even the sort of being that can be material. Um, so they had a different way of cutting up something's being material and something's being immaterial that didn't appeal to just being at a place Mm. right and if if immaterial things can be at a place without being material um well then i think you really cut that worry of well is there a necessary connection with saying that God is ubiquitously wholly present to every place in virtue of his essence. Yeah. Doesn't that entail theological worries about God's having a body or God's being material? Well, it would, I think, uh, only if you were understanding what it means to be material in terms of occupying a place or being at a place. But again, I would just, um, I would just encourage, uh, your listeners, uh, to to dip back into the tradition, to Mm -hmm. see how they they locate immaterial things at a place, angels, souls, uh, and God. But obviously these are not material, nor are they even muriologically uh, complex things. So there must be a way of uh, preserving immateriality, and yet having or locating immaterial things in space in a way that doesn't entail their material that doesn't entail that they're bodily. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but on the assumption that to be material is to be at a place. Yeah, that does follow. And so I would recommend instead of kind of biting that problematic theological bullet of saying, well, if you want to go this route with respect to omnipresence, you have to say some funny things about, about God. Um, um, I think that only follows on certain sort of philosophical assumptions that I think uh, historically were just not shared. That's good. Yeah.
0: So tell me, Ross, why, why didn't I learn about any of these distinctions in seminary? And why did <laughs> they not exist in any of the theological books that I've been reading? Oh, man. Where did they go? I, I, I'm not a, you know, it's a sociological question, I guess. They've always <laughs> been there, Jordan. They've
2: always been there. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is just kind of a downstream symptom of our, you know, are BNA historical generally mm-hmm. in terms of our theological training. Um, Cause you've said you, you
0: see this in Turretin, you see this in Owen. Are there other uh, post-Reformation scholastic
2: type people who are using these types of distinctions? Absolutely. So, you know, in the 17th century, you really, one of the sort of main polemical disputes was between uh, the reformed and Socinianism. mm mm-hmm. And you had uh, thinkers like Faustus of Sinus. You had remonstrance thinkers like uh, Vorstius who denied divine infinity mm. and divine immensity and said that God is localized to a particular place, namely heaven. Mm. But he's present everywhere in virtue of his power and his knowledge. Now, if you go back and you read Owen, so the mystery of the gospel vindicated – Go back and read Owen's Mystery of the Gospel of Vindicated. It's a direct polemical attack on um, Socinianism. And he lays out all these distinctions. Mm-hmm. And if you read Turnstin's Institutes, one of his main polemical foils is, are the Socinians. And he's laying out these distinctions between circumscriptive, definitive, repletive presence. God's not present just by way of knowledge and power because he had sort of the Socinians in mind. Yeah. Um, And it's just interesting that we're often or one can run the risk of repeating certain historical aberrations with respect to divine omnipresence that you find uh, many in the post-reformation period um, deliberately arguing against. Um, polemically, so it may just be a symptom, Jordan. I don't know. I'm just speculating. No, um, that,
0: and isn't it our constant temptation to repeat errors in the past because we haven't done our due diligence in uh, immersing ourselves in the great tradition? So, it's good, Brandon. Do you have any other thoughts or questions? No, I don't think so. Um, good, Ross. Before before we close up on this, have you thought about? how thinking about divine omnipresence might shape just my everyday enjoyment of God, my everyday uh, love of him, my everyday trust in him. Yeah. Is, it, uh, is there really any like boots on the ground practical import to thinking and dwelling and contemplating this particular divine attribute?
2: Mm, that's a great question. That's a hard question. It's a big question. Yeah, But it's definitely one that that deserves... Contemplation. Well, um, I suspect maybe one reason why one might be leery of saying that God is um, by essence spatially present at every place is um, is that perhaps God uh, competes with things, mm. uh, at, at, created places, uh, in the sense that there's this sort of competitive relation between, uh, between God and creatures. Um, so if something is wholly at a place, well, um, it's going to be hard to get something in, else in that place yeah. if something's already wholly there. But, um, I guess one, one sort of way of thinking about the non-competitiveness between god and his creation that i mean even aquinas says god is um god is in augustine as well god is truly closer than you are to your own self <laughs> to you um that god is present in such a way that his presence can be uh, attended to in precisely the same way that say i'm attending to your presence mm-hmm. right now as a being that is in space that a, as a being that is present to a particular place, you're in my office and I'm attending to your presence as one who is, um, shares a particular uh, medium. But God obviously doesn't share the medium of created space in the way that you share it with me. Um, so God can be, because of his perfection and immensity, God can be uh, closer to you than you can even be to yourself, but more so than any created thing can be with respect to you. So um, God doesn't share the same limitations um, that you and I share with respect to our way of being in space. Um, so I guess circling back to the original thing that got me interested in divine omnipresence is thinking about uh, the trying God's relationship to space and how um, and how he he lives and moves and has his being mm-hmm. in the creation turns out it's it's much more um, at least on this particular way of understanding it it's not an argument for the view. Uh, it's just that God is um, God is God is spatially present um, in the same spatial medium but in such a way that doesn't undermine his aseity,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that doesn't undermine his, uh, his independence, um, or anything like that. Um, so maybe that would be one one thing to say. I think there is more, but yeah. maybe that maybe that would be sufficient. But
0: that's good. And, and before we we end, I I want to say this about Ross. Um, I don't think he would say it himself because he's too humble. <laughs> but I think he is just a tremendous scholar. Uh, there's not a lot in our, me and Brandon are both evangelicals, and below that, you know, we're, we're in the Southern Baptist Convention, whatever you think about that. Um, this is going to be airing after all the, the drama that's going on, so who knows what goes on there. But the point is, we don't have a lot of serious, engaged scholars, particularly in the philosophical realm. And I think Ross is one of the premier thinkers in that area. Uh, he's publishing all sorts of serious, helpful uh, things. Such He's got a book called Substance and the Fundamentality of the Familiar. I mean, you could take that to any institution and use that as a text, and they would take that seriously. That can't be said for a lot of the thinkers in our own tribal circles. So I, I just commend you. Read his stuff. He's doing serious thinking, and he's wanting to do it with the classical tradition. I mean, a lot of times we have some serious thinkers, but they're untethered from the classical tradition. So I would gather probably most of our listeners want to be in that. I think Ross is a model thinker in pretty much every way you, you could think. He's a, he, he loves the local church. I mean, he teaches here at a seminary, training pastors. I look around his office and I can pick books from, he's got a commentary on Isaiah from Alec Motyer. He's got Jim Hamilton's God's, you know what glory and salvation through judgment. And then you, you can look over to the philosophical section. You see every serious philosophical work that there is. I mean, he's just this wonderful mix of theologically informed and astute, but also a serious philosopher who is engaged in these areas. So it, if you're thinking about doing PhD studies, you want to do philosophy related things. uh, I think Southeastern has a wonderful program, the program they have a PhD in philosophy of religion. You can come study with Ross Inman. You can come study with Greg Welty, who's probably one of the other uh, premier thinkers in our circles of the world. I mean, he he could go teach at Oxford. He could teach anywhere. He's that smart. I think if you come somewhere like here, you're going to get a wonderful education from these two men. And I think there's just a growing interest in philosophical theology and all those related things. And if you've listened to this so far, I think you realize pretty quickly, Ross knows his stuff and he's got a pastoral heart. And so even if you're a pastor... I think this is a great avenue to think. I mean, he's, he's got pastors under him right now. I know one of them, Jason Allen, he's a friend of mine. Uh, I'll give him a shout out here on the podcast. Um, he's a pastor wanting to do a PhD in philosophy of religion. I, I think that's just wonderful and delightful. So I think those of us or those of you who are listening who are thinking about these things, which is, I think, a fair amount, give Southeastern a look. I think it would be worth your time, and I think if nothing else, you should be reading Ross's stuff because it's it's really great. So yeah, that's too kind. You're that That's my little kind. plug for Ross. Um, Thanks, I like brother. to to encourage um, and model thinkers that are out there that you should say, yes, read their stuff. You're gonna learn not only the conclusions but just how to think. So I think he really models how to think through these topics. and I think he realized that just through the own episode itself. So, this has been a lot of fun, Ross. Thanks, yeah, thanks for doing this.
2: Guys, thank you so much. Uh, I imagine time.
0: everybody's going to want to have you back and uh, talk talk more about it. So thanks for tuning in, everybody who's been listening to the only analytic Baptist and conventional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.